This is Novel Marketing, the show that gives you innovative ideas on how to sell more books. With your hosts, agent, author, and marketing maven, Thomas Umstead Jr. And best-selling, award-winning author and marketing guru, James L. Rubart. Episode 193. I'm James L. Rubart, but you can call me Jim. I'm Thomas Umstead Jr., but you can call me Mr. Umstead. And I'm Chris Fox, and you can call me that guy with the beard. (laughs) (laughs) And in this episode, we're going to talk with Chris about ads for authors who hate math. And and I think that's probably, what, 97%? Didn't we do a survey, Thomas? I think it's 97% of authors hate math. And Chris, for those of you who have not heard Chris before, he's been a, a guest on our show a couple of times now. And he's a friend, and he's also brilliant, and he's incredibly successful on both sides of the writing coin, both nonfiction and fiction. And a lot of this, that success comes from the way he uses advertising to boost his book sales. So, Chris, welcome back to the program. Really uh, great to have you back again. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. So let's just talk about the elephant in the room. Authors hate advertising and they hate math. <laughs> it's uh, probably the only thing they hate doing more than those things is maybe putting together book proposals. So why <laughs> is advertising so hard for authors? Uh, because you have to get everything right, because there are so many moving pieces from the image that you use to the ad copy that you're using to the targeting for the audience. And if you have mistakes or problems along the way, it may not be apparent where those are occurring. So it's like leaks in a hose, where if you're running a bunch of water through it, and you have 10 different leaks, you don't even know where the water's coming out, just that it's not getting to the, the place that you want it to go. That's a great metaphor, actually, uh, because that is exactly how it is, right? If you have multiple points of failure, uh, fixing one doesn't necessarily fix uh, the problem. Uh, So walk us through your advertising spending. Why should we listen to you when it comes to advertising? Okay, um, I spend about nine to $10,000 a month in advertising for my books. I turn that into um, somewhere in the neighborhood of about $30,000. So I'm kind of close to tripling my money. That varies a little bit. Um, that kind of success takes a lot of finesse and a lot of practice. So obviously I started at a much lower level and I was, you know, $5 a day, uh, and building up from there, but you get to a point where once you understand the advertising platforms and you know, your audience and you know, the product that you're selling your books that you can sort of find that intersection. So I spend at a level that is much higher than, than I would guess probably our average listener. But if you're looking to break into this today, it's as simple as starting to experiment and, having a hypothesis about, okay, I'm going to try this type of ad towards my audience and I'm going to see how they respond. Maybe they like funny. And so you try funny. Um, Maybe that doesn't work. So you try serious and see how that works. So it's, it's about constant experimentation really. And uh, what this proves is that your approach works, right? Because if somebody is spending, you know, $9,000 a month on advertising and their approach doesn't work, they're going to run out of money very quickly, right? It, it takes a proven system and a working system to be able to reproduce that every month where those you're planting 9,000 uh, seeds and you're harvesting 30,000 seeds, right? Like that's a, a functional, uh, productive farm. Uh, so walk us through some of the lessons that you learned the hard way and kind of your approach to advertising. How do you think about advertising uh, that makes you so good at it? Uh, in 2015, <clears throat> some courses came out in the advertising world, <clears throat> and they really kind of um, underscored an approach and how to make Facebook ads and how to compare your book to other books. And it worked well, I think, for a lot of people that took the course, but that effectiveness faded over time. And I watched quickly how people were just using the same trick, and they hadn't really u- learned 
the advertising platform, they haven't really learned their audience. They just learned a single method. And as soon as that method stopped working, they were sort of out in the cold. And I didn't want that to be me. So I took a big step back and I said, okay, what I need to figure out is how does my target reader find books today? How is somebody who's interested in reading the type of stuff that I am writing finding books? Are they going to Amazon and browsing? Are they hearing from friends? Uh, Are they seeing ads on Facebook that maybe interest them? And I came up with some hypotheses. Hypothesi? I don't know what the plural <laughs> that is. <laughs> and I tested them out. And some of them worked and some of them failed. And the ones that failed lost me money. And the ones that succeeded uh, made me money. So I kept doing those things. And and this is the secret. A lot of you are like, okay, that sounded kind of basic. But like, no, that this is the secret sauce. If you want to be successful in advertising, that is in some ways, all you need to know is what Chris just talked about. Approaching this like a scientist, creating hypotheses on what might work and then experimenting and then measuring the results to see if those results worked or not. And what a lot of authors do is they approach uh, advertising and they buy ads. And if they don't work, they're like, ads don't work. And sometimes they're like, ads don't work for me. But sometimes they're like, ads don't work, period. And you'll see authors on Facebook groups. They're like, Amazon ads don't work anymore. Facebook ads don't work anymore. And I'm like, how do you know that? <laughs> it's like, what? How, how are you experimenting? And you, um, when you set up an experiment correctly, you know ahead of time what you're going to learn from the experiment. And typically, if the answer is some big, broad thing, you haven't really learned anything in specific. It's about setting up specific hypotheses and then testing those to see if they work. And so Chris, give us an example of some things that you've tested, some experiments that you've run and like what the results were. And and if you've had any surprises along the way. So the first thing I would do is find a tagline that I thought converted. Um, And I would take that tagline, I'd put it on an ad, I would take an image for my cover, if it's good. My very first novel was called No Such Thing as Werewolves. It's got this, you know, super scary werewolf standing next to a pyramid. It's very evocative. So I would take that artwork um, without the typography, so just the raw artwork. Uh, I would put that into an ad. I would use a tagline. And then I would start testing different audiences. I wouldn't change the ad at all. I would segregate it by gender. So I would do one that was all men. I would do another one that was all women. Um, I would do another one that was, let's say, age 30 plus. And then I would do another one that was age maybe 18 to 30. And I would see how each of these performed. And if I saw any sort of outlier where something was performing better, where maybe women really liked this book more than I expected, or men did, um, or maybe uh, younger kids were really into it, then I'll start feeding those ads more budget, and I'll kill off the ones that are not performing well. So I'll come in again with a theory. Maybe I think, okay, uh, people age 30 or greater are going to like this book and buy it in greater quantity, but I'll run that test and then alongside it, a test for people that's 18 to 65 instead of just the 30 to 65 I want to test. So I have a control group and then I have, you know, an actual thing that I'm testing. And I am approaching it just like Thomas said, very much like a scientist. All right. So for those of us who uh, science was a long time in the past, what is a control group? So a control group is uh, a group where nothing is changing. You, you are measuring one specific thing about that group. And you know that that group is controlled. It's always going to be exactly the same thing. So maybe in our experiment, the control group is 18 to 65. And it's always going to be that. And we're going to keep measuring against that control group. And then every experiment we do is going to be some permutation of age. And the reason why it's important to have a control group is it helps protect you from uh, events that are external to your experiment that may be influencing the performance. So uh, let, so let's go to your werewolf example. Maybe halfway through your experiment, a new werewolf movie is announced. 
and it affects all of your different experiments, positively or negatively, right? The new trailer and everyone's watching it. And maybe the kids are really watching this trailer a whole lot, but it, it will help you see, oh, the control group saw a boost of 5% in their clicks because this new werewolf movie I didn't know anything about came out. And so the all of the experiments that you're running, you have to take that into account. It's like, oh, this wasn't as good of an improvement as I thought because this control group also saw, without me doing the experiment, also saw a boost uh, because of this external event. Um, what are some other experiments that you've run uh, and, and what sorts of things have you found along the way? Um, I've tried to talk to the audience differently. And so I'll, I'll run different types of ad copies. So in one ad, I might do an excerpt from the book. So let's take the best action scene that you ever wrote, like three pages worth, and I'll just dump that into an ad with a picture of the cover and let people start reading the book. And at the end of it, you put a link to the book and they can click through and buy it. Um, you may find that in, let's say, epic fantasy, that does really well. But if you pl- put that in something like, you know, romance, maybe it doesn't convert as well. So I would test that for my genre. And if it didn't work, then I'd try a different approach. I might make up something funny about the book and say, um, it's the Deadpool of Gamelit, written by the author's totally biased friend. You're, you're trying to get the audience to laugh. And, and then oftentimes, if they're experiencing that kind of positive emotion, they might click through and investigate the book for, further. So I'm trying to come at the problem from a whole bunch of different angles. And I'm just looking to see how my audience reacts. Do they like serious? Do they like funny? Um, Do marketing quotes work? Does scarcity work? So by scarcity, can I say to them, okay, my book is on sale until Tuesday for 99 cents. What a great deal. And that'll get them to buy. Or should I leave that out entirely and just talk about the plot? So do you find that these experiments that you're running with ads uh, influence your writing? Like as you write a new book, do you take kind of your understanding of the audience, your understanding of what's resonating with them and what's not into putting that into your next book? It doesn't tend to influence the plot that much. But what I've noticed myself doing is that when I write the sequels, I'm looking for things that I can use in that marketing copy. And so if I write a really good scene in a sequel, I'm like, oh, that's going to kill it when I start advertising. So I guess I'm more hyper aware of how that book will be used, but I wouldn't say it shapes the plot necessarily. Yes, it's not a full loop, uh, but it's very close to that where your understanding of what's working helps influence, uh, you know, not to touch that scene. You're like, ah, this one's gold. (laughs) Right. Chris, shifting gears a little bit on you, I want to talk about budget because I think some of our listeners right now are going, oh boy, I don't have all this money to do all these different experiments to educate myself. And so when I ran my ad agency and I had clients come to me and want to do traditional advertising, like TV advertising and radio advertising, one of the first things I would ask is what is your budget? Because if they had a very low budget, I would say say to them, you know, you're better off to throw a company party than you are to throw money at this ad campaign because it's just not enough. It's not going to be effective for you in the market that you're in. Maybe in a smaller market, we could do something, but in your market, sorry, it's not going to work. So as a basic question, what do authors have to have as a, say, minimum budget to start doing these type of experiments? Um, I don't think you even need a minimum budget. You could do $30 a month and, and start gathering some data. But I will encourage every author hearing this to run a brutal self-assessment of your cover and your blurb and your book. Look at your book. If it looks as good as the other top books in your genre, if the cover is is every bit as good as theirs and the description sound is good and it's pretty much indistinguishable from the best people in your genre, great, you're ready to advertise. If, if that's not true, if your blurb is not perfect and your cover is not perfect, full stop, don't spend a dime on advertising, walk away from it entirely and focus all of your money on getting your book where it needs to be as far as the cover goes. Yeah, I totally agree with you on that um, because it, it's... 
a lot of times when I had clients that say, Hey, your, the TV isn't working. They'd come to me with old campaigns. I'd say, well, the problem isn't the budget. The problem isn't the frequency. The problem isn't the station. It's the ad. That's what you've got to change first. And essentially our blurbs and our covers are our ads. So how do you go about evaluating that? How would you encourage somebody to find out if the cover is working or not? Cause they're not necessarily, especially indie authors are not necessarily unbiased. They think the cover's great and it's really not. So first I would say um, we're all attached to these books like they're our children, especially if you only have one novel out because we've poured so much of ourselves creatively into this endeavor. So it's hard to be objectively biased. Fortunately, authors are, and and no offense to my own kind, we are the rudest people in the world. (laughs) If you go to a writing um, community, especially online where people can be anonymous and you say, hey guys, this is my book. What do you guys think of the cover and blurb? If there's any problems at all, they're going to tell you, trust me. (laughs) That's a great thought. Although if you ask for feedback on the Novel Marketing Facebook group, we'll be a little bit more polite as we tell you, <laughs> your baby is ugly. <laughs> but, uh, but I will say this is a really great point because trying to buy ads for a book with a bad cover is kind of like trying to run a marathon while dragging a car. It's like this car is going to keep you from succeeding and there's literally no way to run a marathon while dragging a car behind you. Like it is physically impossible. And so it's not about training for the marathon better. It's about cutting the rope to the bad car. And, and I, I want to reiterate here, a bad cover does not mean an ugly cover. It's not about how pretty the cover is. It's about how effective the cover is. And sometimes ugly, quote unquote, ugly covers are very effective at getting attention and getting clicks. Well, you know, covers that could be mounted in the Louvre as a, you know, beautiful piece of art uh, blend in with the background and become invisible uh, to readers. So in your experiments, Chris, what are some of the uh, characteristics that you've noticed of covers that work as opposed to not work? And let's talk uh, specifically in your genre. So you write, um, or let's pick one of your genres. So uh, science fiction and fantasy, what sorts of things have you noticed work as opposed to not work? Well, what works is evoking a symbol in someone's mind. So every word that you know, every number, every color, every noun is a symbol. If you think of the word dragon, you are going to conjure an image in your head. Maybe it has wings. Maybe it can breathe fire. But you have um, a bunch of information associated with all of those symbols. Your job when putting a book on the market is the thumbnail image. That's the super teeny view that somebody sees if they're browsing through a list on Netflix or on Amazon, anytime we're looking through media and you're just seeing that thumbnail, your thumbnail needs to convey the appropriate symbols. So for my space fantasy, I have a dragon and a spaceship so that you know you're getting both of these things and those symbols are evoked in that person's mind. And without me saying a word or without them even reading the title, they're able to say in their own heads, oh, I see magic and I see technology. I wonder how those are working together. And so their brain's already churning on that. And all they've done is glance at the thumbnail. If your thumbnail is absolutely beautiful and you have this epic battle scene with 14 characters on it, the thumbnail just looks like a blur, you know, and and there's nothing coming from that in the reader's head. And so they just scrolled right past it. So, Chris, I love what you're talking about in terms of symbols. And uh, like, I feel like that's really powerful. How do you find out which symbols to use? Is it just like a gut feeling thing? Is it a observing what your competitors are doing? Do you look at your audience as a mix of those things? What's, What's the kind of strategy for having the best symbols for your book? Kind of all of the above, but I start with my own brain. Like, what do I think is good? So let's say I was writing um, a Dan Brown style religious thriller. What, and, and, you know, I can choose where it's going to be set. Like, let's say it's involving the Shroud of Turin. 
what symbology could I use to convey that to my audience on the cover? I would imagine the Shroud of Turin. <laughs> you put the actual shroud on the cover. <laughs> Boom. Yeah, and then we're good to go. Uh, so sometimes it's as simple as that. And, and maybe let me ask a question this way. If finding a symbol is hard, is that an indication that the book may be hard to sell? Like it, if it's hard to communicate, oh, here's a symbol that captures the emotional feeling of this book or the topic of this book. Because um, I will say I, f- I found that to be the case with blog posts. If I'm writing a blog post and finding an image is hard for the blog post, it's an indication the blog post is too abstract and isn't going to resonate with its audience. Absolutely. I, yeah, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> Another thing, Chris, that you mentioned kind of in passing, you said, does the cover look as good as the other books in your genre that are hot right now? And I, I think it's beyond that. Does the We need, need to ask the question, does it fit in with those books? In other words, if people are looking at those type of books, do they say, oh, that's in the same family? Or do they look at it and go, wow, that's not even in the same universe. That must not be the kind of book I like. I, I think a lot of authors go, I want my cover to look so unique and so different and stand out from everybody else. They make it too unique and people won't take a chance on it. Can you comment on that a little bit? Yeah, you, unique is the kiss of death. Um, you want to broadcast to your reader that they're going to get an emotional experience similar to an emotional experience they've had in the past. So when they see your cover, they want to see something new and different but they also want to relate back to something that they know from the past, like another series that they read. And you can capture this not just through the image on the cover, but also through the typography. If you're using typography that looks like the styles that were used, like let's say in the 1960s on those um, pulpy science fiction novels, if you're trying to capture that and that's your target audience, they're going to recognize that you're appealing to that style. And you can use that as a symbol in their head. And they're going to say, oh, this is just like those books I used to read when I was a kid. And I will say traditionally published books rely on topography a lot more than indie published books, I have noticed. Uh, partly, I think it's because the designers have bigger libraries of fonts. <laughs> and partly, it's a um, the d- art direction is coming from a different uh, angle. But you can do so much with good topography. And you will find New York Times bestselling books that persist, you know, week after week, where there's no symbol on the cover other than the typography the typography stands alone with perhaps some sort of color treatment and that's all it needs to work Uh, but it requires a designer who's very fluent in uh, the language of typography and it's uh, a pro tip it's not using times new roman (laughs) and it's not using (laughs) comic sans if you can see the font in microsoft word in the drop down it's probably not a font uh, that will have the emotional impact that you're wanting to have is that what you've noticed chris something along those lines yeah, absolutely. And, and probably a good example. Most people are familiar with Star Wars. If you see the Star Wars font, you'll recognize it instantly. Which is fascinating because you would think they would have used a spaceship, right? Like if any uh, uh, genre would have justified a spaceship or s- actual showing stars, it would have been Star Wars. And yet uh, Star Wars chooses a typographical treatment, as does Star Trek, frankly. It's a very uh, unique font. And this is actually another thing you'll see with higher budget book covers. Sometimes a font is created specifically for the book uh, where it's not actually a font that's in a font library somewhere. It's actually something custom designed, which Star Wars and Star Trek both, those weren't like fonts that somebody downloaded. Those were fonts that were created specifically for that genre. Hey, Chris, we let's talk a little uh, bit of specifics about these ads. In my mind, you've got Facebook ads, you've got BookBub ads, you've got Amazon ads, you've got Google ads. I'd say that those are kind of the big four. Can we talk specifically about Facebook ads and how do you make them work and then maybe move on to the other the other three as well? 
Um, Facebook is challenging largely because there are lots and lots of authors who have gotten really savvy with it and are making a fortune. Uh, and there's all sorts of tips and tricks that they're using, which may or may not work for, for you in particular. Um, the advantage of Facebook is that it gives you a way to reach your audience. And so what I will often do is a form of content marketing, or maybe I have like this super cool trailer created for one of my novels, and I've done this several times. I'll put it out there as a Facebook post, and I'll boost that Facebook post, and I'll let that play. And people will click like, and they'll share it, and they'll enjoy it. And then when all is said and done, I'll end up with five or 600 people who clicked on that. Well, I'm going to use those 600 people as a lookalike audience so that I know to look for more people like that. And then I'll create a second ad that's actually selling the book. And it'll go behind to all those people who clicked on the first ad and very inexpensively sell copies of that book. And my cost per click can be as low as like, you know, six, seven, eight cents. Okay. I like that a lot. And and here's what makes that such a cool strategy is that it's using two broken strategies, right? We've talked a lot about how um, book trailers don't really help sell books and boosting posts isn't a very effective ad strategy, but using that to get a lookalike audience is brilliant because <laughs> what you're doing, what, what Chris, he's not trying to sell books uh, through that, that video. Some people may, but I doubt that original ad paid for itself in terms of what you paid for it. Uh, but once you have an audience, that's the right kind of people that you can then target with your more targeted ads uh, that totally pays for the original ad that didn't you know work. And now you've got an audience that you can use moving forward. And that is brilliant. Uh, Great, great work. <laughs> that is, that is, that is doing research. That is doing extremely accurate research and going, all right, this is where the gold is. And like you said, Chris, you're not paying as much money because you know, each one of those people is highly, highly, highly targeted. Now we should say, uh, or we should ask, what is a lookalike audience? So for the person who's never heard that term before, uh, what does that mean? So um, this is Facebook reaching into its data science where it's saying, okay, I know that these 500 people that you're handing me all have certain things in common. They're all roughly the same age. They live in this certain location and they have these interests in common. I'm going to go out and find other people who look just like the people in this audience. And since it's Facebook, I have 2 billion people to choose from. It's pretty easy for me to find a couple hundred thousand people who look just like those 600 people. <laughs> and I, this is really offensive to humans because we all think we're special snowflakes, especially us millennials, right? Like, there's no one who's like me. How dare you say there's 100,000 people uh, just like me? Uh, but the reality is, is that this does work from a marketing uh, perspective. You're similar enough in these specific areas. So this is not alike in the sense of like, oh, these are other people who are, you know, 32-year-old uh, men with, you know, a wife and a child, and they live in Austin, Texas. That's not what they're looking at. They're looking at millions of data points uh, to match you up on stuff that is so complicated, there is no human who understands it. So it's using machine learning, which is very complex, but it's finding people who have the similar interests uh, to you, even if they live in different parts of the country or different, have different uh, demographic factors. And um, this is using all of the creepy, invasive privacy and violating things that Facebook does for your own benefit. So you have to be okay with this, like at a moral basis. You can't be like complaining about Facebook violating your privacy if you're going to use Facebook ads because you're literally benefiting from the sorts of things uh, that Facebook is doing. Um, all right. So we... I could pick your brain about Facebook for the rest of this call. And I know you have a lot more to say about that. And I should say, we are doing a webinar 
And Chris and I are hosting a webinar on June 25th, 2019 at 7 p.m. We'll have a link uh, central time in the United States. We'll have a link to it in the show notes with the correct time zone in your part of the world. If you want to come and go deeper on any of these things, we're going to be answering your questions. Uh, But I do want to hit these other areas of ads. And um, Google ads are interesting. Chris, I don't know. Have you do you work with Google ads much? Is that a part of your mix? Have you played with those? Um, I have. They're very expensive just because they advertise a lot more products than simply books. And, and so you're competing with people who are selling more expensive products. Um, but I've seen authors make money with it who have really taken the time to learn the platform. Yeah, I, from my experience, the best way to use Google ads is with retargeting, where it's not as much about getting people to your website. It's about getting people back to your website, uh, which is tricky uh, when you're an author and you're not really pulling people through your own website, you're wanting people to go to Amazon and just make a purchase right away. Um, have you played around with retargeting? Because I know Facebook does this too with the Facebook Pixel. I have. Um, and, and I think it's a tremendously useful tool for every author. I recommend having a Pixel installed on your website. Um, if you see those ads where you know you were browsing for a wedding dress and all of a sudden you show up on Facebook and that exact wedding dress is in an ad right next to you saying, hey, buy me. Um, people are doing that using these pixels. And we're just basically tracking where you're going on the internet and then handing that information back to Facebook. And so how, so, okay, so some of some of our listeners are like, ooh, how do I do that? That sounds really cool. I want to be the creepy person with the uh, wedding dress. Uh, how do they set up a, a Facebook pixel? Uh, so you go to Facebook and you'll have an, an ads account. And in that ads account, they'll generate a, a pixel, which is a little bit of code. And then you just take that code to your web designer or yourself if you're running your own website. You plug it into the website and you're good to go. And what that does is it tracks everyone who comes to your website and everything they do on your website, which Facebook then uses for other purposes, not just for you. So this is why Facebook has so much information. And even if you are not a Facebook user, Facebook is still tracking you around the web because any website with a Facebook pixel tracks you. So there's a, so you're, we're learning a lot of things about Facebook. Maybe, you know, you're learning how the sausage <laughs> is made. Uh, but but once you you can then create an audience of people who visit. So an audience may be people who visited my website. You know, like I've got 500 people who visited my website or they visited this specific page for this specific book on my website. And then you can advertise to those people that specific book on your website. But the other thing you can do is create a lookalike audience. So let's say you've got 500 people who visited your website. You can then say, hey, Facebook, I want you to create a lookalike audience of 100,000 people who are like these 500 people. Facebook will turn, 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 and boom, it's got you an audience of the kind of people who are already predisposed because of who they are to be the kind of people who are interested in your book. Advertising is not a tool for convincing people who are not fans of your genre to read your book. That's not how advertising works, right? Political advertising is not about convincing the other party to vote for you, right? It's about convincing people who are already in your party to vote for you. Um, and that's as political as I want to get, right? <laughs> it's not a form of discussion, right, with with opponents. It's a form of rallying the troops. And with Facebook, it's really easy to identify people who would become troops and all they need is an invitation. Uh, now, so let's change directions here a little bit. So we've talked about Google and we've talked about Facebook. Let's talk about Amazon ads. Uh, so this is uh, always like the hot thing, right? People say Amazon ads are amazing. It's like printing money. And other people are like, Amazon ads are broken. That's so 2018. They don't work. <laughs> they don't work anymore. Uh, <laughs> what, do you, what, what do you say? Do Amazon's work? Yes, no. Amazon ads work too well. <laughs> so here's the problem. I can go to Amazon and I put out like, let's say the Dark Lord Bert is one of my recent novels. And I can say, okay, Amazon, here's $100 a day. 
And I want you to go figure out how you're going to spend this and pedal my book. I don't have to put in keywords. I don't have to tell you anything. It's all automatic. Amazon's going to take care of it. They're really good at figuring out how to put my book in front of the people that are actually going to buy it. But unfortunately, every author in the world could go through the same easy step of here's some money. And so the cost for these clicks are going up and going up and going up. And so it used to be we could do it for 15 cents and then it was 50 cents. And now for a lot of the ads, it's 80 cents. And, and I now see people in my genre, if you want to be in the top position on some of these ads, they're, they're bidding like $8, $9 a click. Wow. And when the cost actually comes through, they're paying like 2 or $3 for each of those clicks. Wow. So how can that work? Because I'm assuming if they're paying $8 a click, that's not for a $10 book. Uh, and even if it was for a $10 book, that's not the, what they're taking home because Amazon takes their cut. So how does that even work financially? So there are, are two pieces to this. The first is usually they also have an audiobook for sale um, and they have a long series. So if you're, you've got this book one that you're promoting for, let's say, 99 cents, and then you've got 10 more books in your series, you're making up a whole bunch of money through the read-through. And so you're probably going to make, you know, let's say, between um, 10 and $15 per person that buys book one. Not everybody's going to read through, but enough will that you'll make that money back. And then the other component is Amazon reward success. Everything that I do is based on data science with Amazon. So for example, right now, I've got a book that's number one in every one of its categories. And all I'm doing is spending a small amount of ad money every day. And I'm letting Amazon figure out the rest of what to do with that book. I spend $100. I get, let's say, $100 in sales and I break even. But then Amazon generates $500 more sales on my behalf because they've seen, oh, people like this book. And I'm going to go show it to more people who look like that audience that Chris showed me. Wow, that's fascinating. And so you have to approach this in a strategic way and advertising, especially Amazon advertising works better for people who are approaching writing as a career and have multiple books. And a lot of authors have their one book and instead of going and writing their second book, they keep taking that one book like a little puppy dog. <laughs> like they take it to conference after conference, they keep marketing it long after its time is due. And oftentimes the best thing you can do for that book is to write another book and, and, and a shared universe or a sequel or, you know, have that book be the first of a series because then it opens up the playbook in terms of what can work. If you've got a 24 book series and each book is $5 and it costs you $8 to get somebody to read the first book and you're making $5 a copy, now that's $100 you're going to make off of that person. You're very happy to pay $8 to get them started on the process of paying you $100 back. Uh, but that's harder to do if you only have just one book. Do you, uh, Chris, do you see where it adds working for, for an author with just one book? Or is this, uh, uh, or is it really more Facebook or BookBub uh, kind of ads that work for a single book and Amazon is becoming a series only, at least in fiction? I think any platform can work. It just takes a little bit more work if you only have the one book. And I would recommend going with a higher price point. So like if I have a standalone book, I might do $3.99 or $4.99 for a cover price or even higher, $5.99, $6.99. And then advertising starts to get profitable on just the one book and, and you have a little bit better luck. But you, you have to scale your expectations somewhat if you only have one book in the series. So give it a shot. And if it's not profitable, you can always turn those ads off. Um, but you know, be prepared for an uphill battle if your, your backlist is not that deep. All right. So, uh, Chris, where can people find out more about you? Um, all information about me is at chrisfoxwrites.com. Uh, I've got a YouTube channel with hundreds of videos on this stuff, um, a bunch of articles on my website as well. So you can learn more about marketing, everything I talked about here, data science and how you can use it to sell books. All that stuff is covered um, either on articles that I've written or, or nonfiction books that I put out. 
All right. And if you would like to ask Chris, the very own Chris Fox, our very own Chris Fox and me <laughs> and maybe Jim, uh, Jim, I don't know if you uh, are free on the 25th. We'd love to have you there, too. But if you want to ask uh, questions uh, and and learn more about this in an interactive webinar, it is June 25th, 2019. Uh, so you do have to not be listening to this deep into the future. But for those of you who are listening in the future, we salute you and we hope the robots have not come for your brains. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah. we'll have a link uh, to that webinar in the show notes. And uh, Jim, who is our featured patron today? Our featured patron for today is Cheryl Elton. She has written a book called Pathway of Peace, Living in a Growing Relationship with Christ. This book will help you calm the noises in your mind and experience more of God's peace. All right. And Cheryl, thank you so much uh, for being a patron of the Novel Marketing Podcast. Uh, I am working on something for patrons only that will not exist or currently does not exist anywhere in the world. And it is so Cool. So if you have been thinking about being a, I can't say what it is yet because it's not ready, but it is going to be awesome. And I have already used it. It's amazing. It doesn't have anything to do with advertising. Um, and, but anyway, just stay tuned because it is so cool. And we've been thinking about, should we make this a separate product? What should we do? And I'm like, no, I think I want to make this a patrons only thing. And so if you have ever thought about being a patron, the patrons are going to be the first to find out about this, the first to use it and the first to experiment with it. And, um, I'll give you a hint. It has to do with becoming a guest on podcasts. It's going to be a tool to make it way easier for you to be a guest on podcasts to get the word out about your book. Um, and being a guest on podcasts is, is like the cheapest way to be a podcast person because you don't have to pay for the podcast. You just show up like Chris Fox. Right? Chris Fox almost has his own podcast worth of guest interviews that he does on different shows. In fact, he's been on my other show. Uh, he's, he's a popular guest, and it's a great way to get the word out about what you're doing. So anyway, if you're, if you're curious to learn more, I encourage you to become a, a patron of the Novel Marketing Podcast. And Thomas, how do they do that? How do they become a patron? So uh, you can click the links at novelmarketing.com or you can go to patreon.com and do a search for novel marketing. There's not like a Hunger Games style contest or <laughs> you fight to the death. There can be only 10 patrons left. Maybe we should do that. I like that idea. Yeah. Patrons this only summer. Hunger Games competition. <laughs> this August coming to an arena near you. Um, so. Anyway, you have been listening to James L. Rubart, Thomas Umstead Jr., and our friend Chris Fox on the Novel Marketing Podcast, giving you innovative ideas on how to promote yourself and your writing offline, online, and everywhere in between. Thank you so much for listening.